0: This is uh, Dr. Sue's podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices and informed consent. And unlike usual, I'm not here with Liz today, who happens to be at a birth down in San Diego, uh, doing what she does best nurturing somebody and bringing a new baby into the world. So she'll be back with us next week. But as usual, going through the introduction stuff, uh, we're happy to be back with you for podcast number 191. And uh, we're coming live today from my uh, little office here in my apartment in Studio City, California. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to my uh, daughter who did that lovely painting of the skier behind me. And uh, this is a picture of her. Um, She just turned 24 two days ago. So uh, happy birthday, Madeline. And this is one of my favorite pictures. I put this one up there too, because it's really one of my favorites. She's so cute. Huh. What happened? She grew up. Uh, anyway, you can reach me at ask at gmail.com for, for questions. My, uh, website is, um, what is my website? <laughs> Birthinginstincts.com. And bliss is at birthingblissmidwifery. Um, Bliss at midwifery is how you can email her. And uh, her website is birthingbliss.com. Okay, I think I got most of that stuff. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, Hopefully the people who will try to find Bliss on Instagram today will realize that she's not there and head over to Facebook. We are planning to eventually change to Zoom. Uh, I think that might happen either this month or early January. Try try a different... uh, Method so we can be all in one place at one time and we don't get cut off and that sort of thing. So we're going to give that a try. I wanted to send a shout out to uh, my f- clients, Juliet and Andrus and baby Elise for my lovely t-shirt, which I'm wearing today, which they gave me. Um, I think you might have seen it once before. Uh, but it is uh, sort of apropos today because today's theme is sort of uh, complicating the simple. And so we're going to get to some of those things on that. Uh, First, I'd like to just read a quick little note from VC who sent me a a note this morning saying, uh, hi, Dr. Stu, I just wanted to give you and your team a big thank you. I went to see you at the beginning of October to get a consultation uh, for VBAC after two C-section clearance, which in California, by the way, it's very great. VBACs, midwives can do VBACs in California, but... A lot of the midwives locally because I'm around here will send me their consults in order to get a letter on the chart from a physician saying it's okay. It's one of the, it's another one of those dumb things. It's another one of those things that complicates the simple um, because there's no way that I know better than a midwife knows whether someone will have that rare complication of a, a scardia hissing and midwives are just as capable as obstetricians of determining risk factors. But for whatever reason, the powers that be play it that way, so that's what we do. And uh so she said, I'm my midwife Robin, wanted to make sure I would be a good candidate for a VBAC after two C sections. And on November 9th, I got my V back, and he weighed 8 pounds 3 ounce, or 8.3 pounds. I guess that's 8 pounds 3 ounces. So congratulations, VC. I knew you could do it. Success rate, by the way, for VBAC at home, which I can digress for a second. Uh you know, in my practice is about 93%, and that includes VBAC after two and VBAC after three. It maybe drops a little bit for VBAC after three, but I haven't had enough of those to have any sort of statistical meaning. But I have had enough VBAC after twos that I have a a success rate of 93%, which uh, of course, most hospitals have a success rate somewhere between 20 and 50 or 60% uh, for VBAC. And so clearly again, it is not so much that we're cherry picking our, our, our clients. It's, it's more just the uh, midwifery model of care and the home setting and the lack of fear and anxiety and leaving women alone to labor, as you know, is key for success in my profession. OK, so a couple things. Um, last time I mentioned that there was a relative risk of 1.3 of autism with epidurals especially epidurals that are for more than like 18 hours. So the longer ones. Um, I stand by that that statement. I've had some emails on that this week saying, you know, are you sure, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I, I the article was a pretty good article. And so it's something you, when we give informed consent regarding epidurals, we should, con- we should consider it. I mean, the risk is still low. I mean, it's really low. So 30% more than a very low number is still a very low number, but it's something that should be um considered if you're going to talk about the rare risks of things that doctors want to talk about like you know a ruptured uterus or or like um you know if you don't take antibiotics this could happen maybe one in 400 times well you know you have to be uh equal opportunity informed consentor all right anyway so i have this um let me pull this up because it went it was on my screen and it just disappeared so let me pull it up again But um, my friend Jamie, she's a midwife in Hawaii. This morning, we were having a conversation about hepatitis vaccine. And she sent me an article that hepatitis vaccine uh, increases the risk of autism in in baby boys, uh, especially baby boys of color. But um, that was a study from the last decade. And I think that was when mercury and thimerosal was still being used in the vaccine. So I can't equate that to what I can say for now, although everyone I think who listens to me knows that I think giving a newborn baby a vaccine that's really never been tested in newborn babies and certainly never tested in pregnant women whose mother and father have both tested negative for hepatitis B is one of the dumbest things you can possibly do. And to make it even dumber, all right, I'd like to read to you what the uh, PDF has as what the hepatitis vaccine has in it. So that you can, again, I know I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you can again pass this information on to people you might encounter. Okay? So here I go. Recombivax HB hepatitis B vaccine, is a sterile suspension of a non-infectious subunit viral vaccine derived from hepatitis B surface antigen produced in yeast cells. A portion of the hepatitis B virus gene coding for hepatitis B surface antigen is cloned into yeast and the vaccine for hepatitis B is produced from cultures of this recombinant yeast strain, according to methods developed in the Merck Research Laboratory. The antigen is harvested and purified from fermentation cultures of a recombinant strain of yeast, oh boy, Saccharomyces cerviceae, sorry if I butchered that name, containing the gene for the ADW subtype of hepatitis B surface antigen. The fermentation process involves growth of this Saccharomyces on a complex fermentation medium, which consists of an extract of yeast, soy peptone, dextrose, amino acids, and mineral salts. The hepatitis B surface antigen protein is released from the yeast cells by cell disruption and purified by a series of physical and chemical methods. The purified protein is treated in phosphate buffer with formaldehyde and then co-precipitated with alum, which is potassium aluminum sulfate, to form bulk vaccine adjuvant with amorphous aluminum hydroxyphosphate sulfate. Okay. So, does that sound, sound like something you want to put into your newborn? <laughs> okay. It's a hypothetical question. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Anyway, I just think it's uh, it's sort of interesting to see that this is what's recommended worldwide actually, but certainly in our country to all newborns to get hepatitis vaccine. Even in you know, in countries where hepatitis is endemic, that's one thing. But in parts of the United States where hepatitis is not endemic, which is most of us, um, to give this vaccine. And again, that study with autism in young boys, again, with thimerosal in it, which isn't there anymore, um, also found that if you waited a month to give the vaccine, the incidence was much less. So I would recommend that everyone challenge their hospital or their or their pediatrician or their OB or the nurses when they want to give your baby hepatitis vaccine and ask them for their understanding of the reason why it's being given and if you and your husband or you and your partner have checked negative for hepatitis there's absolutely no reason to take that vaccine okay um, last time also I mentioned one of the themes was about salatong forceps are not salatongs and I actually realized we forgot to get to that. So I want to give another shout out to my friend Nathan Riley and his podcast, the OBGYN Wino or to Wino, OBGYNO Wino podcast, I get it wrong every time. Um, and he gave a real good summary of ACOG's uh, um, guidelines regarding vacuums and forceps, but he kept calling forceps salad tongs, which is because he doesn't use them and that's sort of the nickname that they've been given. But I want to make sure that people understand that forceps are not like tongs that you pick up a, a block of ice with. They're not. They don't have sharp things on the end. The, the handles are designed to protect the baby's head. Salad tongs are designed to squish things so you can pick them up and put them in your bowl. That's not what forceps are. So I don't want that. I want to counter that statement. I love you, Nathan but you can't be calling forceps salad tongs because for those of us that still use them, they're a great tool. And if we could ever get them to be brought back, they're a great tool because when a baby is in trouble and the heart rate is down, uh, you can put a vacuum on as you've described and you may take four or five pulls. It may take two minutes to 15, 20 minutes to get that baby out with forceps. You can have that baby out in about 15 seconds. So if the baby needs resuscitation or the baby's in trouble, it really is a good tool to have. Now, fortunately, they're very rare to be needed. And especially in the home birth model, it's really rare because we don't, we're do not we not stressing babies out uh, with too much Pitocin or uh, the epidural disconnect that we talked about last time to the baby, causing the baby to more anxiety and more stress. So forceps are a useful tool. I'll just leave it at that. Um, I also, in in the promo for today on Instagram, I also said this is podcast 170. Uh, I don't even know how I got 170 when it's podcast 191. So that's it. Okay. So let's get on to some interesting stuff today. Um, I did a twin birth this past week with uh, my colleagues, uh, Robin and Beth, at uh, a birth birth center here in Thousand Oaks. And it was uh, a very interesting story. And, And with permission, I've been able to tell you this. Um, the woman was, uh, was, it was her third and fourth babies. So she'd had two vaginal deliveries before, which I've had unbelievably great success with in my practice. Um, as long as people make it to term and the first baby is in a, you know, a stable longitudinal lie, then I have no problem with those people laboring. I don't really care what baby B's position is, um, because it will either convert or I can always reach up and get it if I have to. And yes, I can do that without anesthesia, all right, because we've had these conversations in the office. We've gone over them many times. They've had informed consent, so it's it's something that we can do. Anyway, so so this lovely woman um, had on her calendar that the Friday after Thanksgiving was when she turned 35 weeks and four days, which was the day I told her at 35 and a half weeks I would consider delivering at home. Prior to that, she um, Standardly, we would send people to the hospital simply because we expect the babies may need a little bit more attention than we can give them. But even at 35 and a half, even if she was 35 weeks, I probably would assist her at home. And if the babies had to be transferred, um, then the babies would have to be transferred. But at least she would get a vaginal delivery at home because her babies were uh, vertex. The The second baby was a backup transverse lie. I don't think that most obstetricians these days would even attempt a vaginal birth on that. They even rarely attempt them when they're vertex, vertex. But but when one of the babies isn't in a vertex lie, they often will just recommend a C-section. And of course they will recommend it at 37 or 38 weeks. So in this case, that didn't matter because she was 35 and a half weeks. So at 3.30 in the morning on the 35 week and fourth day, she broke her bag of waters. And she was kind enough not to call us until about 7.30 in the morning and uh, she went into the birth center to confirm that they were ruptured and to check the heartbeats, and they were fine. And then she went back home, which is a reasonable thing to do. Now, she had unknown GBS status, so that was an issue because we hadn't done one yet. So I think a good thing to do with twins is probably to do the GBS a little bit sooner than 36 or 37 weeks like we do with singletons. So I'm going to start to do that. I think normally I would have done that with her, but I, I think we were alternating care between seeing me and seeing Robin. So it got sort of, maybe got slipped through the cracks there. Um, anyway, so we, we looked at the risk factors. And she had two risk factors, obviously. One was she was preterm and two that she had ruptured her membranes. Um, so at some point, um, we had the discussion of, of, of antibiotics or not, and she, de- she declined. So she did not get antibiotics. And about three, four hours later, she was in really good labor. And so she came to the birth center. And the first exam at the birth center, she was, I think, seven centimeters, if she wasn't, nine, maybe nine, I don't remember. We were all on our way right away. When I heard that she was going to the birth center, we all left because I've been through this before. Multip twins, especially early ones, go fast. So um, the student and me and uh, Robin were there, Beth was on her way. And she felt uh, like she wanted to push, but she was. But uh, with the exam, Robin said the baby was still high up, baby A. Heart rates were fine, everything else was fine, vital signs were great. So she was standing up, and we were sort of standing around uh, right next to her, uh, having, you know, t- between contractions. And she was pushing, and, and, and Robin would gently check her periodically, and the head was still fairly high. And then with one giant push, uh, when we weren't really paying attention, uh, baby, baby fell down and hit the floor, uh, from a standing position and the cord snapped. And so what do you do when the cord snaps? Uh, well, you don't panic. Although we got a little, we got a little exciting. I think I got a little excited saying, you know, grab the cord, grab the cord, grab the cord and Robin picked up the baby from the floor. And I think that cord snapping actually sort of was like a bungee cord a little bit. And it sort of slowed the baby down because the baby, was fine. I mean, it wasn't that far to the floor, but it was farther than the length of the cord. And so we uh, put a clamp on the cord, and that baby was then taken over. And then Beth arrived, and we worked on that baby for a little bit. And I'll tell you about that baby in a second. Um, the other piece of cord was hanging down. Now, with die die twins, you don't have to necessarily clamp that cord because the babies had separate placentas. But if you had monodied twins and that happened, you'd probably want to clamp the piece of cord that was hanging down on the small chance that there was a little shunt between the two and one baby could bleed out. But then again, that's a very rare thing. So we left the cord hanging there and her contractions disappeared. And so she got back in bed and sat down for a while and we were working on baby A and baby A was um, retracting. Uh, had APGARs of eight and nine, but it was the chest walls was retracting a little bit, and we were really after about 10 minutes. We did an O2 sat, which was fine, it was 97 percent, so it was great. It was breathing okay, but it looked like it was working a little hard to breathe. And we're only at 35 weeks and five, four days, so that's what we thought. And maybe we'd have to transfer the baby to the hospital, but boy, did we not want to do that because. If, All of you listening know what that really means. When when the baby goes to the hospital, um, you know, the mother's not going to go to the hospital because the mother has another baby with her, and that baby's not going to go to the hospital unless it needs to go. And so the father's going to go, and the baby's going to go, and it's premature, and it was born out at home with ruptured membranes, without antibiotics, so it's going to get cultured, it's going to get put on antibiotics, it's going to get put in the NICU, it's going to have all these things, it's going to probably have a 10-day hospital stay, they're going to give a formula. Um, all the things that necessarily we didn't want to happen. So uh, so uh, so Beth arrives and does her magic. And while Beth is doing her magic, Robin and I decide we might as well get baby B out and see if baby B needs to um, also possibly go to the NICU because then we could only drive them there once. Um, Robin's place is right next, right near the hospital. We would not have called an ambulance. It was not an emergency, but it would have been taking them to the hospital in a car seat. So, um, turns out that baby, uh, B was starting to come head down. And so all I did was I took my hands and I pushed down her belly a little bit and that baby changed the vertex. We broke the bag of waters. And shortly thereafter, we changed positions a few times and that baby came exploding out on the bed, uh, with dad trying to catch, but it was almost, it was almost in baseball. It was if it was a pass ball because the, uh, the baby came out so fast, and that baby did great. And that baby was bigger than the other baby. We knew that ahead of time. Our, our I think our going in our estimated fetal weights were five, four, and five, fourteen, and the babies ended up weighing five, two, and six. So we weren't that far off. Um, and the six pounder did fine. Sometimes actually the larger one doesn't do as well as the smaller one. Um, but that baby did fine. So now we're stuck with baby B, a uh, baby A. And we're keeping an eye on it. And we called the pediatrician and we had a conversation with him and baby would come around and would be making this sound. It would be doing this thing on expiration It would be going, uh, 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 you know, every now and then it would stop for a while and then it would start up again. So, you know, we tried to listen to the lungs were clear. We're not sure what that sound was making, but with O2 sats were great. The retractions had abated. And so we decided uh, uh, we would just keep the baby there. And we watched the baby for four hours and ended up sending the baby home with the parents and the baby did fine. And we checked on the baby that night and then the baby went to the pediatrician the next morning, the baby was fine. I saw them yesterday and the babies are fine. They're a little bit little bit orange. So we have portable billy lights. So we left them the portable billy lights, but they got to have their babies in a birth center. Going home with them, being at home with them, being skin to skin, uh, no separation, only breast milk. And we, oh, and, and um, Beth called one of her uh, clients who had some uh, donor milk. We got donor milk over because the babies were small. So we also, when they were latching, we would do the supplemental feeding with them with a, a little syringe and a little tube. And we only had to do that for about a day, about 24 hours, because mom's milk came in rather quickly. And the babies were, are thriving. So it's a good story. Um, what you can do when you have skilled practitioners and you have patience, and you trust the process and you know that you have backup available if you need it. But I, again, the lesson here for us is how reluctant we were to use the backup to be in a situation where we want to send a baby because we know what will happen in, in the NICU. I, which I've lovingly called in the past baby jail. And we wanted to do everything we could to avoid that and have the kids not be separated and have them, you know, the dilemma of the mother, you know, the, if the mother went to the hospital, then what do they do with the other baby? And, you know, with twins, it's a little bit more confusing. So it turned out it was a good story. And I want to shout out to Robin and Beth and to my student, Alyssa, because with, with, when you have a team like that where everybody knows what they're doing um, It's great. It's great. So I just wanted to say that. So uh, interestingly enough, that was my only December birth. So this is a weird thing about the birth world schedule, is that um, I now I now have no births for the entire month of December. Now that will probably change as people will call with a late breach or uh, need me to come and put a vacuum on or something. But right now I have zero. So I'm going to probably try to go to maybe Arizona or someplace again and do some hiking uh, just to uh, use my time wisely because there's so little else we can do around here. I mean, we're in Southern California. We can't even go to a restaurant, movie theater, hockey game. Not even supposed to walk outside really without a mask, but, you know, that's that's not something I'm, I'm following. I, I wear masks in stores. I wear masks when people ask me to wear masks, but I'm not wearing a mask on the hiking trail. Um, Anyway, so what's really weird is because I had nine births in September. I had nine births in October. I had six births in November. I have zero in December and five in January. So how did that happen? What was going on last March? I don't know. It's really weird. Just thought I'd bring that up. Okay, so I'm going to move on to the topic I really want to get to today, and that is um, a discussion of shampoo review, um, gaslighting, what's going on with uh, the election a little bit, with lockdown a lot of it. And also, many of you know uh, my colleague, my fellow traveler, my kindred spirit, Brad Boots Taylor. Uh, he's a maternal fetal medicine physician who runs Sea Babies in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, he works in the hospital setting. And up until a couple days ago, he had had, had privileges at Atlanta Medical Center. And um, it's public now. He sent out a letter to his clients. Atlanta Medical Center gave him three weeks, and they're not renewing his privileges. And um, I have a little post-traumatic stress disorder when I hear this, because this is very similar to what happened to me. And I I want to get into it a little bit. But before I do that, I wanted to... um, read something to you from um, the parent company of the Atlanta Medical Center and just see what you think about this and then base that on what I'm going to tell you with what what's going on with Dr. Boots-Taylor. All right so it's um, this medical center is owned by a company called Wellstar it's kind of like probably Dignity Health here in Southern California or Kaiser it's a system all right so their mission statement says at Wellstar our patients are the center of everything we do Nationally ranked and locally recognized for our high-quality care, inclusive culture, and exceptional doctors and caregivers. Wellstar Wellstar Health System is one of the largest and one of the most integrated health systems in Georgia. Our state-of-the-art facilities include, well, I don't have to go through all that. They've got 11 hospitals and a whole bunch of stuff. Every day, our team of 24,000 healthcare professionals provides personalized care for patients at every age and stage of life. As a non-for-profit health system, our passion for people extends beyond our system and into the communities we serve each year. WellSTAR thoughtfully reinvests in the creative creation of healthier communities through prevention and wellness programs and charity care for our eligible clients. The WellSTAR Foundation supports our mission with funding for equipment services programs and more. Our mission, to enhance the health and well-being of every person we serve, our vision, deliver world-class healthcare to every person, every time, okay? So keeping that as the background uh, in mind, let me see, I'm gonna look at some of your questions here uh, in a minute, but just keeping that as the background, okay, for how, they've, how they treat certain people and by treating certain people that way, How they've disenfranchised certain women, because to give a a physician as renowned as Dr. Boots-Taylor 21 days to shut down his practice when he's got people due in December and January and February, he's not giving those people due in December the best care possible. They're not because they don't. I mean, they're going to they're now they're scrambling to find somebody who can deliver them after December 21st when when this edict is enforced. So um, everybody's probably scratching their head going, well, why would they do that to somebody? Did he have a bad outcome? Did he do this, did he that? No, the answer is no. All right, it's the same thing for me. And it's the same thing for uh, a couple other doctors that I know of, Uh, my friend Adrian, um, same hospital that I was at was, was her privileges were not renewed uh, about two years before mine were renewed back in 2008 or 2009 for her. And the process of trying to fight the hospital is impossible. Um, they won't say it's impossible. They'll say, oh, you have rights. But the rights are essentially what's called an administrative hearing where you can, you're accused by somebody, you're, you're tried by somebody, and you're judged by somebody. And that somebody is all the same person or people or, or committees. So it's a, it's a kangaroo court, so to speak. Um, And it's what we call sham peer review because they make it seem like peer review. And the way it starts is it starts with something called gunny sacking. Okay, but I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, First what they do is they often will do what's called gaslighting, and I think everybody probably paying listening probably knows what gaslighting is. Gaslighting is from a movie, uh, I think it was in the 40s or 50s, and it's trying to make a woman think she's crazy. uh, distorting her reality to the point where she begins to wonder, "Am I the crazy one?" All right, and we see that going on right now with uh, with uh, big tech in the mainstream media. If you happen to say be a fan of hydroxychloroquine or a fan of the lo- or not a fan of the lockdown, and you post something about the lockdown, and you're immediately uh, censored or or criticized or uh, banned or whatever. And then and then you have all kinds of people um, messaging you about how nuts you are and how dangerous it is. And and then you start to question your own reality. So that's the kind of thing that happens. And it happens with lot. it's certainly happening with the election. Um, Again, I'm not I'm not going to get into it too much other than to say that four years ago, everybody challenged Trump's um, legitimacy and they never stopped for four years. All right. The same people that never stopped for four years are now telling you that if you legally challenge some of the vote counting methods that you are undermining democracy and that you should just shut up and you should accept the election as it is. OK, well, and if you and if you get enough people telling you that and the mainstream media, everyone's telling you that you begin to think that, well, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with my thinking. Well, the answer is no, there's nothing wrong with your thinking. All right. There are many, many questions about the legitimacy of the vote counting. And there's many, many questions about the legitimacy of the lockdown. And we're now finding out that, you know, for months and months and months, we had to close schools. And now the people that are suddenly saying that are now saying we should open the schools. So we knew this. I mean, everybody, everybody with common sense knew that they take something that's fairly obvious or something that's very simple. And then they complicate it. This is what academia does. This is, you know, the more degrees you have, the more complicated you think life is and the more you get away from what life really is about. All right. It's not that complicated. Protect those that are vulnerable. Let the other people live their lives. OK. And, and the 11 or 12 million people who've had coronavirus and now have antibodies. Why do they need to be locked down at all? Why can't they go out to restaurants? Why can't they have a restaurant? It's run by people who had coronavirus and they're all they've all had it already. And you could go there and you could mingle and you could drink and you wouldn't have to wear a mask because you all have antibodies. It's like uh, people who, you know, right now, and the argument will be, well, we don't know that you can't catch it again. And there are rare cases. You know what? That's that's gaslighting. That's ridiculous. All right. Maybe there will be some people that can catch it again. But, you know, I had measles when I was a kid. I'm not going to catch it again. All right. I can go into a, a measles hell hole and I'm not going to get measles. All right. You know, and if you've been vaccinated for it, like I, I, I watch Outlander. I don't know if any of you watch Outlander, but in I think the second season when she's in France, um, the ship comes in and a bunch of people have this rash all over them. They're really, really sick. And, you know, she knows because she's from the future. Spoiler alert, by the way, um, that uh, she. Um, uh, that is smallpox, all right. But she's got this little thing on her on her arm, uh, which I don't have. But a lot of people in the '50s, probably '40s and '50s, that's the way the smallpox vaccine was given and left a scar. That um, she knows she's immune to smallpox, so she tells everyone to stay away. And she goes in and starts to take care of these sick people, knowing full so well that she's not going to get it. Anyway, getting off the track, I want to get back to the whole thing with Doctor Woodstock. But I just want to I just want to say that. Things are not as necessarily, don't have to be as complicated as they seem. People in academia, people in administrative positions, that's their job is to make things complicated so that you need more to hire more academicians and more administrators, all right? What do administrators at the hospital do all day long? All right? I mean, things are going pretty well at the hospital. They still, the administrators aren't laid off, all right? They meet in meetings, they have meetings, of course they have meetings. This is why I could never go back to a hospital because they have meetings where they accomplish nothing and they table it till the next meeting. So they have a meeting to decide when they'll have their next meeting and then they have another meeting and then nothing really gets done. And anything that gets done is really complicated. They'll make a 25 point plan for washing your hands or something like that. So you can see my disdain for that sort of thing. So this whole gaslighting, gunny sacking, shampoo review thing really hits home for me because I am... um, Someone who's been through that, and so what they're doing to Doctor Boots Taylor really has me pissed off. So, um, and really, what it is is gunning gyne- and gunny sacking. For those of you who don't know what it is, is essentially the definition means gradual accumulation of ira- of irritations and slights, leading to an overblown reaction. So, in other words, nitpicking little things, maybe things that have been adjudicated five years ago or ten years ago, and bringing them back up again so that you can start to create a paper trail of what sounds like a lot of this, this person is causing a lot of problems. Okay. Like for me, I remember I get, I got ri- written up one time for wearing the wrong scrubs to a birth. All right. I got written up for my, my midwife got written up for a broken clavicle on a baby, but the OBs who had broken clavicles didn't get written up. This sort of thing. You know, I'm wearing the wrong shoe covers. Um, I, 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 uh, Oh, you know, whatever. I, I spoke to the nurse too harshly. Something which I, probably is true. <laughs> but it's, you know, it was probably in defense of something that they had done to my client. And yeah, so there's no excuse for that either. I, I To every nurse I ever spoke too harshly to, I apologize. All right. So um, so what's happening to Dr. Boots-Taylor is, is really a, a distraction from the bigger picture as to why does... Atlanta Medical Center want him gone I mean it's not because he has bad outcomes he does breaches he does twins he he uses the um, informed consent model you know he's the author of of this book which I brought up a few a while back ago this is from doctor this came out this year as a matter of fact maybe maybe they don't like the fact that he's an author of a book that allows the patients to say no to some of the things the hospitals want. And that's where I think it all comes from, is that hospitals like to run on an algorithm. They like to run with one size fits all. Everybody gets an IV. Everybody gets peas in a cup. Everybody changes into a gown. Everybody gets monitored. Everybody gets this. Everybody gets antibiotics. Everybody gets hepatitis vaccine. Everybody gets Pitocin, uh, all that stuff. And we run on an algorithm. And Dr. Boots-Taylor doesn't. So he was kind enough to send me some of the things that he had said in response to some questions that he was sent. Now, I don't have the questions, all right? But I do have, um, I do have, I'm looking at, I'm sorry, I'm looking at comments. I'm going to have to go to comments in a second. But but uh, I do have the answers that he wrote. And from the answers, you can tell the kind of questions that were asked of him. So I'm going to read some of these to you, and then you, um, you see what you, um, well, I'll, I'll give you my take anyway, since I can't get your take. Um, but you can interpret the questions by the nature of his answers, OK? So um, here's what he writes um, to question number one. Um, patient X was offered both cesarean and induction, and the risk-benefit explained. This is typically done in the office, but it's not unusual to also do this at the bedside as well. The patient made the choice to have an induction. Silence for effect, okay, all right? That's his answer. Somebody asked him a question like that, okay? They said, why did you offer her induction or something? And so he had to explain to them the process of informed consent. And these are the people sitting in judgment, okay? Number two, Servadel for induction in a VBAC is, is recommended per ACOG guidelines. But cytotec is contraindicated. Thereby, cervidil was used as a cervical ripening agent. A category two fetal heart tracing is not unusual during the course of any labor, of which it is typically addressed with conservative management such as rotating the patient, increasing IV fluids, etc. All right, that's another answer. Why are they asking him these questions? These are they probably know the answers to these questions. So why are they asking him these questions? It's gunny-sacking. They're, they're making a file of all these things that he's being reviewed for, all right, because if he were to challenge them in court or administratively process, they need to build a case. So they're building a case of nothings, and a whole bunch of nothings, after a while, begins to feel like gaslighting, because why would this guy have, to a third party who's maybe adjudicating, why does this guy have so many... Uh, reprimands. There's so many uh, reviews in his file. Why would that be? Okay. Next one. Evaluation of the patient and the fetal heart rate tracing occurs over time, and depending on the response, a cesarean may not be indicated. If the concerns regarding the fetal heart rate are not resolved, then a cesarean will be recommended. Sound reasonable? Sound reasonable to me. Um, Another one says, light stained meconium differs from, quote, thick meconium, unquote, and is not an indication of fetal distress. How many times have we said that here on the podcast? Additionally, the subjective interpretation of light meconium is a judgment call by the nursing staff. In regards to water birth, there is a Atlanta Medical Center, or what I'll call AMC policy, supporting water birth. So that's nice. And that's probably Dr. Boots-Taylor was probably instrumental in getting that policy There There are criteria for water birth to include contraindications. Light meconium amniotic fluid is not a contraindication per the OBGYN department policy. So here's somebody probably, I can interpret the question is, why did you let this woman with meconium into into the water? And so he's explaining the difference between light meconium and thick meconium and the fact that light meconium isn't a contraindication in their own policy, but he has to explain that and now there's another little chink in his file all right then he goes on to quote the ACOG committee opinion on water birth and so by the way I did copy that out and I and I don't have time to do it today but I think I'm going to do that in a future podcast I'm going to go over ACOG's water birth guidelines because yeah just because all right (laughs) yeah we'll do a future podcast on that okay um Somebody, there's another question which he answers by saying AMC, OBG1 department has a protocol on water immersion and water birth. So it's a separate question, maybe from a different questioner about the same thing. And he's got to tell them, so they imagine the question being, well, you know, why, why were you doing water birth or how, how is it that you were able to do water birth or something like that? Okay, here's another one. Patient declined HIV testing in the office. Thereby a rapid screen was performed on admission. I can only assume that patients admitted to AMC need an HIV test, which, okay, you know, you could argue that um, um, policy, but it's a policy, all right? But if a patient wants to refuse testing and you're following the uh, shared decision-making model, um, then how can you force her to do that? So they're yelling at him or, or mad at him because he didn't run it antepartum, but he offered an antipartum and she declined it. So what's he supposed to do? This happened to me once with, with when I had a complicated patient with twins, primip, hypertension, I think developing preeclampsia, maybe polyhydramnios, maybe first twin was breached. It was a, and she went to 41 plus weeks. And I really thought that she should have gone to the hospital earlier to be either induced or have a section like a thirty nine. I just could see this where this was going but she kept refusing and she kept asking me is any one of these things in itself a problem that would make you have to send me to the hospital I, and I was honest and i said no so we kept going but and then when she got to the hospital i got yelled at by an attending physician there for how could i let this go to this point and it's like you don't understand the way we practice so there's nothing i'm going to say to you that's going to make it okay um Here's one that's the the delay in cesarean is typically secondary to staffing logistics and the patient's desire to delay the procedure. So here's one where they must have asked him, well, if you call the C-section, how come it took two hours to get it done? I'm I'm just making that up. Oftentimes when a cesarean is called, unquote, there is a delay regarding staffing, which can be prolonged. And this patient did not have a previous classical cesarean. This must be a typo. As I performed her first C-section, and, um, and a previous classical is a contraindication to a trial of labor. So you can just see the type of questions they are asking. And here's my favorite. This one's my favorite. I can't even imagine what the question was. But you tried it. Maybe you, you guys can. Uh, I'll start reading the comments in a second. Maybe you can text me uh, what you thought the question was for this one. Patient L, okay, question or answer. SergiCell or SergiLube is a sterile lubricant like KY Jelly. When placed on the gloved hand, it makes it easier to traverse the hand through the vagina to the uterus. Thoughts? SergiLube is a sterile lubricant. When placed on the gloved hand, it makes it easier to traverse the hand through the vagina to the uterus. What could possibly have been the question? Holy moly. I don't know. All right. Um another one, patients advised of the risk benefit of all options and makes a choice based on those risk benefits. This patient presumably chose to go home to await labor. More than likely, she was also advised to induce labor with pitocin. Having ruptured membranes for 18 hours is not unusual. The issue of meconium is unclear given the nursing notes. Alright. I can my quote my surmise of that question would be. A woman came in with ruptured membranes and wasn't in good labor, and you sent her home. Why would you do that? All right. But that's our model, and that's his model. And why not do that? You know, ideally, we would have had her come to the office or we would have gone to her house to prevent her from going to the hospital to confirm ruptured membranes in the first place, like we did with the twins who went to Robbins. With twins at 35 and a half weeks with ruptured membranes confirmed, and then we sent her home. All right. Hospitals would like lose their mind over that, but I'll, ideally, you want her to be in the safest environment for her that's possible, uh, where she feels uh, calm and left alone. And and putting a woman who's not in labor with ruptured membranes in the ho- ruptured membranes ruptured membranes in the hospital um, to wait is about the dumbest thing that you can do. Because and I'm not even talking about the, the microbiome there or anything. I'm talking about that people stand around, and they start to get antsy. People get nervous, the mother gets nervous, and then labor becomes dysfunctional or doesn't come back. So the best thing you can do is send that person home. Um, yeah, so that, you know there's more, but that's that gives you a good sample of the kind of things that we call we call gunny sacking because where did my sheet go? Oh, there. Um, we call that gunny sacking because they're they're picking up what's called little irritations and slights. And, leading, and then leading to an overblown reaction. And their overblown reaction was they couldn't, they wanted him off staff for some reason and they couldn't get him off staff because of the quality of care that he was providing or the outcomes, you know, or that sort of thing. So they, they did this to create a file and then they, use, they know they have the power of the administration, administrative hearing to make it almost impossible to fight. And even if you fight a hospital and it costs you hundreds of thousands of dollars and months of your time, and you were to win, okay, you're going to win the right to stay at a hospital that you know is hostile to you. And everything that you do is going to be scrutinized, and everything your midwives do are going to be scrutinized. And therefore, it's an untenable situation. And if you fight, by the way, the other thing too is if you fight and you lose, as you most likely will through the administrative process, that gets reported to the Medical Board of Georgia and also the National Practitioner Bank, And that's something where you then triggers a automatic investigation by those organizations. And that's another thousands of dollars of legal fees and stuff like that, defending yourself. So little guys have no power. And a lot of the good guys who want to offer alternatives and choices are being, are being squeezed out of business. Anyway, it's really, it really sucks. Okay. So um, let me take a look at some of your comments. If you, if I, if you have, minute here
1: natalie thank
0: you and hannah good morning um thank you natalie that's a really nice compliment natalie just says i've been an inspiration to make her follow her dream of becoming a childbirth educator right and you've got to be a childbirth educator that educates people with all the facts not the skewed facts all right so let's see then did Bliss, com- oh, Bliss commented on my podcast. Hi, Bliss. All right, so Bliss is uh, at a birth, but oh, and she says she's sorry to miss today. I guess you guys can read that. Um, and her, oh, she's pushing. So maybe by the end of the podcast, we'll have a baby. Let us know, Bliss. Okay. Sarah says, "Love you, thanks." Alexandra says, "Everyone deserves this kind of care." I don't know if you're talking about what I'm doing or with the twins or whether you're talking about Doctor Boots Taylor, but. But thank you for on behalf of both of us. Uh, oh, maybe it's about bliss's care too. Of course, of course. Yeah, anybody who gets bliss is really lucky. So I'll just say that. Um, yeah, it is like hospitals think that babies are theirs when they're born, because and Nikki is often baby jail. Yeah, Jolene said that. I, you know, we've had we did a Halloween thing last year at Halloween where we talked about uh, um, baby stuck in baby jail. Two baby, two twins born, I think at 34 weeks, which was a little too early to keep them at home. Um, Yeah, taking away human rights one at a time. We birthing people need to write. Yeah, that's one of the things I have in my notes here is is I have it down that nothing needs to be as complicated as it it is. And this all has to come. Dr. Boots Taylor also. It has to come from the grassroots. It has to come from women making demands. Changes in the hospital seem to be getting more rigid. you think they'd be getting less rigid all right now coronavirus probably was a setback for some of the changes that were coming in many of these hospitals but the idea that they're still not letting doctor i mean uh fathers into uh 20-week ultrasound visits um that they're not letting i mean they're not letting people look again if you have a family member who's had covid and is healed and has the antibodies why can't they attend your birth um I'm not exactly sure that anyone's thought this out. I think a lot of this stuff is shooting from the hip. And that's why you're seeing all the mess that you're seeing uh, with the lockdown issues where the, you've got to do this. And then five, you know, five days later, oh, no, you, you that's we're wrong. you got to do this. Well, actually, they don't say they're wrong. They just change their recommendation. Or, of course, all the hypocrisy, which is, hypocrisy is not a big enough word. We've got to come up with a new word for hypocrisy with chutzpah. Because there is hypocrisy and then there's the chutzpah of like Sheila Kuehl voting to ban indoor dining and then going out and having an indoor dining and the governor of my state or the governors of all your other other states doing things that they've told you not to do or the mayor of San Francisco following in Gavin Newsom's lovely footsteps up to French Laundry Restaurant and having an indoor meal uh, when, they, when they know it's banned, those sorts of things. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But what's happening in my profession is the same thing. I mean, the not teaching a breach delivery, the not uh, the wanting to induce everyone at 39 weeks, the the idea that everyone needs hepatitis vaccine and and pregnant women should get flu and and Tdap vaccines and stuff like that. Hi, Alicia. How's it going? I hope I'm seeing you soon. Oh, that's, for, uh, yeah, that's not for me. Great, great. Um, Layla says, just joining. Are you talking about? Yes, I am. That's who I'm talking about. And you should be sad and angry, Layla. That's absolutely true. Um, thank you, Natalie. Lana, you're welcome. Uh, Hannah asks, okay, have I seen any COVID positive patients yet? Yes, I have. But they had it during their pregnancy and got better. Um, and then they had went on to have a home t- birth. Though so, the one I'm thinking of is a twin mom. As a matter of fact, I saw her yesterday because <laughs> this is funny. She'll, she'll laugh at this. Um, she had her babies five months ago and, um, she had coronavirus around 30 weeks. She didn't even know she was sick, but her husband got sick. So she got tested. And so we did virtual, um, prenatals for about a month. And then she tested negative and she t- had tested positive for antibodies and we resumed her normal care we went to her house for deliveries i think we wore masks at her birth pretty sure uh, that we would have but even though i don't know the why we would have had to they were all they were all immune already but i don't remember but it's really interesting because afterwards i kept getting um faxes from the department of health wanting me to give information on this woman for i don't know contact tracing or whatever else and i just you know i didn't respond uh, that's none of their business uh, again, if I can be civilly disobedient in certain things, I'm going to do it because that's me, all right? I mean, there's so much going on right now that's wrong that we feel helpless to deal with, that when we can we can do something, that civilly, I don't know why all the restaurant owners in Los Angeles don't all open up at the same time. They can't take away all their licenses. They can't find them all, all right? The Chamber of Commerce is is on the left. So they have no consideration for the poor businesses that are going out of business. Anyway, back to um, the woman who uh, uh, had COVID. So I had to drive over there yesterday because she she had lost the – uh she had forgotten to get birth, birth certificates for her kids, and it's been five months. So she had lost the letters, the birth certificate letters that I give. So I wrote out new ones for her and just drove over just to say hi. So that's it. But I haven't had anybody – at COVID, while they're sick or in labor, Hannah, I haven't seen that. Uh, obviously, if I were, I would. They would not be in my care. I would have to send them out of care. So um, I don't know enough actually to know what to do with something in a situation like that. And also, uh, clearly, I can't. I mean, I, I I take some precautions. I don't take. I'm not. I'm not uh, fanatical about the precautions I take. I'm not paranoid about them. But I but I, I, do, I do not want to get sick where I would affect the care that I provide other people. By the way, if I was getting coronavirus, December would be a great month to get it because, like I said, I have no deliveries. So if, any, if anybody's having a coronavirus party this week, um, let me know, and I will, um, <laughs> I'll head over. Okay. Uh, um, Dr. Boots-Taylor can continue practicing because he's a maternal fetal medicine doctor, and he's got a busy office practice. But what's a shame is that his skills of breach and twins will not be um used again unless he decides to reapply someplace else. But it's not something that maybe at his age he wants to do. I totally understand it. But um yeah, he will continue to provide informed consent and do these things. And, and maybe he'll be more of a thorn in the side of people because now he can do it and and he'll be independent from the hospital. So we'll see what happens. Uh Lana says it feels as though the command of the administration of hospitals is the pair of what's happening globally, yeah, well, it is. It is. You know, they're woke. They're woke. Uh, again, I, I can't, I can't help it. You guys know my political leanings. I can't help it. But when the left, and I'm not talking about good-hearted Democrat, liberal people, but when the left invades something, it always ruins it. Always ruins it. Whether it's sports, entertainment, universities, whatever, it always ruins it. And most big corporations now, you know, they're 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 trying to appease the wokeness by, you know, uh, donating money to Black Lives Matter or, or putting more people of maybe lesser ability but different skin color on their boards and stuff like that. What we uh, we used to have a meritocracy in this country, and it worked pretty well. But now meritocracy is considered uh, white supremacist. So I think hospitals are falling for the same stuff. Their administrations, they're doing all these diversity training and all these things with all the personnel. Even some of them are having, the, you know, the only the white personnel have to go. So, you know, it's as racist as it gets, but that's what's going on. Hey, I only got five more minutes. So let's see what else we got here. Malevolent hubris instead of um, hypocrisy. Not bad, Hannah. You write that down. We'll have to think about it. Malevolent. Hubris. Thanks, Hannah. All right. Using common sense, Susie, not a, not a possibility. <laughs> That's not going to happen. All right. We have to use common sense and we have to hope that that somehow we can overcome what's what's really, you know, talk about a pandemic. All right. Um, we have a pandemic really of, of illogic and stupidity. And totalitarianism and people, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Did I get that right? Home of the free. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, we're not that anymore. All right. We, we're, we're sheep. And I don't know why we believe the mainstream media was wrong about everything over the last four years, pretty much about the Russia hoax and about all, about all kinds of stuff they've been wrong. And suddenly we're supposed to believe them when it comes to coronavirus. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Okay, well, it's time to wrap up. So I got to see. Um, the more complicated we make things that are generally simple, the more the more our society is, it begins to fall apart. All right? The um, sign of a successful society isn't one that overthinks everything. All right? It's the simple stuff. All right? Pregnancy, lockdowns, uh, life in general, the election. I mean, when it when it comes to thinking about solutions for these things, there's something called Occam's Razor. Many of you know what Occam's Razor is. Um, uh, William of Occam. Uh, I don't know exactly know why it's what he did that was named after him, but his thinks his his idea was that when many explanations are possible, the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. All right. And uh, if you look at. Oh, God, I, I don't really want to talk about the election because I don't want to piss anybody off. But the the idea that if you look at all the statistical improbabilities and impossibilities that occurred. All right. Is it possible that they all occurred this year? Is it possible that 80 million more people voted for Joe Biden than ever before in any presidency? that twice as many people in many democratic cities voted for Joe Biden and voted for Barack Obama. Is that possible? Is it possible that, uh, there were what they call dumps of ballots where there were a hundred thousand ballots and every single one of them was for Joe Biden. Is that possible? Yeah. But is it more likely that there was some fraud going on there or, or some malfeasance or some shenanigans? Yeah, that's far more likely. And that's the way we should look at these things. And when doctors tell us that we should, um, treat all women the same, that all women should dilate at the same rate, or all women need an IV, or all women should follow an algorithm, and if they're not in labor good enough by this point and with ruptured memories, they need this, 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 and this, okay? Does that make sense to you? Or is it more likely explanation is that's that's a simpler decision that they're choosing to do as administrative personnel so they can keep things in, in their Excel spreadsheet in proper columns? That's how I look at it. Anyway. Once again, this has been podcast number 191. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I've missed Bliss terribly. Bliss, hopefully the baby's been out. Let me check the last message here. Uh, no, so still no baby, but you'll hear about it next week when Bliss is back on Dr. Stu's podcast. Again, you can find me uh, at uh, birthinginstincts.com and we're gonna be upgrading my website. You can also find me at uh, askdrstu at gmail.com with questions or comments. Uh, or articles that you want me to look at. Again, I can't always look at all the articles I get sent. Um, And bliss is at birthingbliss.com. And bliss at birthingbliss is how you can email her. Uh, Until then, we'll see you next time. And if I were Bliss, I would say, bye-bye.